Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, problem solvers. It's time to put down your pencils and your rulers, your protractors and your slide rules. Grab a cuppa and get comfy on your recliner and ease yourself into another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, with virtual pencil tucked behind his right ear. It's the guy with all the answers. It's Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Well, busy this week, but I've had a few little run-ins with some animals this week. The weather's warming up. Literal run-ins. Literal run-ins, that's right. And you know that things are warming up when the magpies come out. You're out riding your bike and the magpies come along. Look, I was saying to a friend who was walking home, she said, I've got to watch watch out for a magpie. And I said, well, if I'm driving past you and you're on the ground... You're on your own. I'm not stopping for you. <laughs> and they're good. Like when I ride my bike, I actually wear a buff that covers my ears so you can't see my ears, mm. but they still know nah, where they are and they, they come in. They can smell your ears. <laughs> they can. <laughs> so we have that. But then, of course, I always figure out when there are magpies around, then it's about the right warmth for snakes to come along. Mating season, they want to come out and do what they do. So I was riding the other day, mm. out actually with my daughter, she was home at the time, and so we went out for a nice little lovely ride and riding along. And of course, as many cyclists do these days, I had a, a dash cam on the front of my bike and a dash cam on the back, more to keep an eye on what happens with cars, not so much snakes. Mm. But we captured a snake. It was a beautiful moment because I saw a snake on the side of the path we're riding along and it went the other direction, thankfully, mm. and I yelled out snake and my daughter took off at a million miles an hour in front of me. So <laughs> <laughs> if I was bitten, bad luck. She wasn't going <laughs> to wait hang around. for any extra news. Yeah. But then I started thinking about it and I thought, there are so many devices capturing video these days. Yeah. And I joke often about it with various TV shows when they solve crimes. I thought, how did people solve crimes before DNA and CCTV? Because mm. that seems to be the go-to for every crime show. Bingo. Where's your CCTV? Let's get the DNA samples. Oh, there we go. We've Makes found it. Makes a shorter TV show. <laughs> it does much, much shorter. And I started thinking about it and I did some very rough calculations. So I'm, I'll throw the numbers out there and you can see what you think of these numbers. I calculated that across the world, there's about 770 million CCTV cameras, about 100 million dash cams, about 50 million home security cameras, and about a million bike cams out there. That's a lot of tech. They're all recording data. Now, some are recording over the top of itself. So my bike, for example, it does a constant loop, so Mm -hmm. I don't have to put a new memory chip in every couple of weeks. It just keeps recording over itself. But I reckon, based on those numbers there and a few other estimations, we as a not as a nation, as a planet, we're recording about 45 petabytes of video data every hour. So hang on, I've got to do the math in my head. Okay, so you've got a kilobyte, a megabyte, a gigabyte, a terabyte, an exabyte after that? petabyte comes next. Petabyte, right. Petabyte, so that's 10 to the 15. Yeah, Yeah. wow. Now, I'm not including in that rough calculation I've done people that are doing things for real with cameras like movies or TV shows or those type of things. I'm just talking about the things that are basically sitting there recording life as it happens. Mm. So again, you're not having to store that long term because it's recording all those devices I've just mentioned are all recording, looping over themselves. But that's a lot of data. It's a lot of TV to watch. It's a lot of TV to watch if you're going to watch it all. (laughs) But no wonder we've got so much access to thefts that happen or crime or Mm. snakes or whatever it might be. We've got all that data out there. So fascinating. And it's only getting more and more because people are buying more of them. They're getting cheaper. Mm. The quality is getting better. Absolutely. Quite fascinating. 
Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, get one for your own bike, folks, for when you're doing tricks on uh, the BMX track. (laughs) All right, we better head into our first uh, story for the day, I think. The next decade is going to be about our cleverness in gathering energy from unlikely places. Even if you love cold fire power and you feel like the future is still locked in the industrial revolution technology, it takes a very long time to get one of those plants up and running. So we might as well seek quicker, easier and perhaps greener options, do you think? For those on the land with farm dams, French engineers have worked out a way you can power your house with the water from your dams, at least for a couple of hours a day at least. Matt, how is this going to work? I've actually done some numbers and I don't want to bore people with too many numbers, but I'll throw some numbers out we there love in a minute. Numbers. Yeah, good, good. Okay, well I'll throw lots out there. Okay. And it's actually quite fascinating how much energy, how much power we can store using Water or something with weight, but water's fairly convenient mm. and a bit of height about it. The good thing about water is it's quite heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and for my calculations, I've used approximately one litre of water for one kilogram of mass, So, yeah. which is about right. Not perfectly right, but it, it's enough for it. Now, we're pretty familiar with hydroelectricity, and that goes back a long time. Way back to 1878, I found an example. Lord Armstrong used some hydro to illuminate an arc lamp in his art gallery. Wow. So we've known about... But we've been using falling water for ages before that with uh, with milling. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. So we understood the idea that falling water was good to do things, to turn to things. To turn wheels, yeah. That's right. And so then we worked out about hydroelectricity. The first commercial hydro plant was in the USA in 1882. That was the first one in the world. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be in the USA. And of course, I remember seeing information about Niagara Falls many years ago, and that was 1895. And of course, that involved people like Nikola Tesla and George mm. Westinghouse. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. people are very familiar with that. And let's face it, if you got some falling water, there's some severe volumes and velocity of falling water you've got there with the Niagara Falls. So that all makes sense. But then obviously people started thinking about storing energy, because it's not easy to store power, no. storing it with water. And when I say storing it with water, the obvious thing is you pump it up to higher levels and then let it fall when you need that water. Yeah, you're just using gravitational potential energy. Exactly right. And turning that into kinetic energy. Exactly, yeah. So the first example I found of pumped hydro was around the 1940s. There were some examples, limited examples before that, but after Second World War, you started to see a few examples of pumped hydro. Now, the basic equation that people use with pumped hydro, if they're building a large pumped hydro area, then they say that if you've got a gigalitre of water, mm. and it falls from a height of 400 metres, then you can store about a gigawatt hour of power. And those oh, numbers are about... That's a decent amount, yeah. It is, that's right. Now, those numbers are about right at about 92% efficiency. And pumped hydrogen normally is fairly efficient. I would normally say you'd expect at least 90%. But then you start to break it down a bit, and that's a big chunk. If you've got a big chunk of water and you've got a fair distance to fall... Mm. Researchers at the University of New South Wales have started doing some work in farms across the nation. Now, the first example, the the French example you mentioned there, Mm. was in a building. So they were capturing water at the top of the building, and then they said, well, if we let that water fall to the bottom of the building, maybe we could generate some electricity. And they basically produced a little three and a half kilowatt hour battery out of water that was stored at the top of the building, captured with rain initially, Mm. and then rather than let it go out stormwater drained, they caught it there and then had another well or reservoir at the bottom of the building and let it fall there. The really simple thing I love about this is the amount of energy you store is a very simple equation. You take the mass that you've got, you multiply it by the height, 
And then there's some other components there, but I've broken it down to basically give you a constant. So normally you'd have gravity in there, you'd have mm-hmm. a conversion from joules to kilowatt hours. But if you just take the mass in kilograms multiplied by the height in meters, divide that by 366972. <laughs> right. Remember that, folks. That's right. That's a, a little constant that I've created out of these other calculations yeah, yeah. there. That gives you the amount of kilowatt hours that you can store with that bit of weight, that bit of mass, so a bit of water in this particular example. So what I did then was I looked at some examples across this University of New South Wales research. They were typically looking for pairs of dams. Now, they wanted two Mm. dams that were within about 500 metres of each other. That makes sense. You don't want to build a huge pipeline on your farm. So 500 metres, they wanted a land slope of at least 17%. Now, at that slope, you get a drop of 84 metres over that 500 metres. Okay, so you take... Those two, now, when I did those calculations, one megalitre of water, which is not a huge dam, mm. one megalitre of water could store 180 kilowatts, a kilowatt hours, sorry, of energy. That's over that drop of 84 metres. So again, it doesn't matter how far it goes, the, the drop is the important part there. Yeah. And I did that calculation only at 80% efficiency. So what the University of New South Wales found was a suitable dams for storing power there's 30,000 pairs of dams out there with a minimum energy storage of 30 kilowatt hours. Mm. So that's not a big dam. That's two dams, obviously. And that's not taking that whole, you're not emptying that dam completely because obviously you probably want some water in that dam to run your normal farm operations. For sure. But using a bit of headroom in that dam, it's not a lot of water. It's not a lot of mass that you've got over not a large drop and suddenly you've got this storage of power. So what I love about that is it's distributed power. There's some complications with building a pipeline, putting a generator in, et cetera, but that's probably better than a battery because a battery is expensive to manufacture. Yeah. You've got to mine resources to manufacture that, yeah. and then a battery loses energy roughly 15 to 2% per month of whatever's stored in there, and that's without it doing anything. So just having the battery fully charged, I'll have it there for when I need it. You go to use it four or five months later, it's lost about that, let's say, 15 to 2% per month just by sitting there doing nothing. And then it's got a finite life. In 15 years, 20 years' time, it might get to the stage where you go, well, that battery's not storing much power now. Storing power with water, that's the really exciting thing. So when you start to do the numbers, it's pretty attractive. Breaking down all those farms across the land, are you really going to put them back into the grid to store power? Maybe not, but you might use it for your own needs. You might use it for a microgrid. for surely. Well, that's right. Well, and that's the, the interesting part. An average household in Australia uses about 20 kilowatt hours of power per day. So if you had 30 kilowatt hours of storage, well, you've got a day and a half of storage. If Mm. the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining, then you've got that ability to store that. The bottom line from all of this is we're going to see different ways to solve our energy problems. Diversification, yes. Diversification. So lots of little dams, and and they could apply in buildings as well. The next time I'm building a high-rise, surely I'd put some sort of storage capacity in there of water up high and then water down low, and there's my battery. So there's all these different solutions we're coming up with, but I, I love the fact that we've got these dams out there now, building a pipeline between the two, putting a generator in, a pump and a generator, effectively the same device, that seems like a pretty attractive thing to do. So quite fascinating. I wonder how many high-rise buildings right now have the capacity to have some sort of storage put on top of them just for this purpose. Well, any of them probably, but again, you'd want to look at the engineering initially. Yeah. Have you built this to have an extra... So much weight. That's right, at the very top. Obviously, you you figure that when you're designing that building, the amount of 
mass it needs to support is less as it goes up. Yeah. So then you go and chuck a few tons of water at the top <laughs> yeah. of it, then you might throw out those calculations. But ultimately, new designs, I think, would make sense to to have this sort of technology built in, but it doesn't need to be a big drop. So you could actually have some of that water at a lower level as well and yeah. store some energy there. And again, if you can store it close to where you need to use it, that seems like a very attractive proposition. So overall, I, I found that fascinating. I actually found when I did the numbers, I found the amount of power that you can store from not a large amount of water to be quite fascinating. Big ideas coming out your thick and fast, folks. become quite clever and innovative about finding ways to check in, in on our health and, uh, and our well-being over the past decade. And incidental measurements as we go about our day-to-day lives seem to be the most effective ways to check in. You may have a smartwatch that keeps an eye on your heart rate or sleep patterns, etc. Well, there's now a computer mouse that can detect when your stress levels are elevating. Matt, it's a handy little gadget. Does it detect when it's uh, impacting against the far wall in the office? <laughs> it probably would say high levels of stress now. <laughs> alarm, did, alarm, alarm, alarm. <laughs> I did wonder about this one, whether or not the actual stress created by the computer environment is different to stress just by things that are happening in your normal life. Yeah. They, they actually measured the way you use the mouse and the way you type on the keyboard. Now, I must admit, I'm talking about typing away and my wife sitting beside me in my office will say, that's an angry email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're sounding tense. That's right. And I go, no, I'm just typing the way I would do it. No, no, you're definitely, way, you're definitely striking the keyboard you're differently. You're not using fingers, you're using whole fists, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the giveaway there. But they actually did a lot of research on this. And of course, they used AI. We can't go any week without an AI story now. And they found that when you were using longer less accurate mouse movements, you were more stressed. Mm. When you had more typing errors and when your typing was inconsistent in terms of the pace of typing, that indicated that you had more stress. When they actually measured some of these actions of your mouse and keyboard and they compared that to cardiac data, they found that it was actually more accurate looking at your mouse and keyboard than looking at cardiac data. Wow. Yeah. Now the That's ap- interesting. I wonder what happens then. Does it automatically start playing like relaxing music and, and rippling water and stuff on the computer? Oh, well, sorry. I'll back off. <laughs> well, well, this is where <laughs> the interesting part is. In the workplace, for example, let's say an employer said to the employees, we've now added a little bit of extra software to all the computers, so we'll give you a warning when you're a bit stressed and we'll just take you, tell you to take a little bit of a break. Some employees might say, I don't want my boss to know that I'm stressed yeah. or in a more stressful environment, they might want to look at what I'm doing then or they might think that I'm a health risk and might want to give me more time off, I don't want to take the time off. So some privacy issues I'm sure mm. will pop up there. The idea of this research was for a self-help tool for people in an employment environment, a home environment, whatever, so that you could add some software to your computer and you could say, let me know when my stress level goes above X and then I'll just take a little bit of a break. But do you want your boss knowing about that? Do you want your (laughs) boss knowing that that you're a bit stressed and therefore you've got to take a break? Do you want your wife knowing about your angry typing on there? This is interesting. They're actually going to now take the research they've done and they're going to put it into a work environment and the Swiss insurance company, or a, not the, a Swiss insurance company, is the first company that's going to take it up. And I reckon 
in the insurance environment would be pretty stressful sometimes because mm. you've got to say no. Every claim that comes in, you have to say no to, don't you? <laughs> that's the first reaction. Surely that's or stressful. Or give away thousands of dollars of the company's money and then have to answer to your boss. That's right. Either way, they don't sound like a great environment. So I think we'll actually get to the stage at some point in time where we'll see this implemented. There'll be some feature on a computer. There'll be someone that'll come up with the idea to say, you can add this app and it'll just overlay what you're doing. But I'm just not convinced that every person will be happy with someone else knowing about mm. it. Of course, one problem with all these health trackers is the question of what actually happens to all the data, meaning who gets to see it. Well, imagine the paranoia that comes with owning a smart toilet, particularly the ones with a camera that points <clears throat> upwards. Matt, uh, is the, well, Matty, <laughs> with a story who's going to scare you into a state that you'll be so backed up, you'll be making noises like a delivery truck. Um, Matt, smart toilets. I'm getting nervous just talking about this already. I don't want to go to the toilet at a friend's place, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading some of the notes about this, and there are some very alarming things about smart toilets. You're spot on. And one of the things that's interesting is that IoT, Internet of Things devices, typically focus heavily on their functionality, mm. but maybe not so much on their security. They're trying to gather data. Mm. They're trying to give you some useful information, but they don't always focus on the security. And smart toilets are in that category. Some experts are saying a smart toilet should be put into the same category as a medical device because it can mm. assess information about what's happening in your body. It can exactly. alert, alarm, etc. Do you want everyone to know about that? Do you want your insurance company to know about that? Maybe not. Now, if that's your smart toilet, that's one thing. But again, imagine visiting a friend's place and then you find out a week later that you've just got a report that's been sent through. Billy Bloggs has visited my place and now that information's out there mm. that he's got too much salt in his urine or whatever does, it might be. <laughs> does a smart toilet take a, a bum print or is it... Um... Well, one of the ways they identify individuals sometimes is because every anus is unique, it can identify who's on the toilet by a There's picture. There's the camera that points upwards. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. How's, so, so how's your dinner going, folks? That's, that's the way to identify who it is in your household that's sitting on there. Now, if someone different sits on there, it might be, this is a guest. What's your name, guest? I'm not telling my name to this toilet yeah. that's asking my name. One of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that we are going really well with getting lots of extra information about our health, lots of extra information with CCTV that I talked about earlier, all sorts of information, but where does that go? Where is it mm. stored? How is it used? That's the really intriguing question. So I love the idea of a smart toilet. I haven't got one in. You'll be safe to know when you go to the toilet <laughs> my place, James. But I do love the idea of a smart toilet to give you an update on your health because it's such a hassle to book into a doctor to say, I just want to check up. Doctors always want something to be wrong with you. Mm. They don't love the idea of wasting their time when you seem like a fit, healthy individual with mm. no problems. Why are you wasting my time? I've got other people that I can see that are unhealthy. But I like the idea of doing those updates and being a bit more proactive rather yeah. than reactive. Active, a smart toilet fits into that absolutely. So I'm waiting till I can get a smart toilet in Australia, but I want to make sure I'll read the privacy policy of the smart <laughs> toilet and see what's been happening with that. The the manufacturers of smart toilets say that they don't want to, them to be classified as a medical device because that would increase the cost of them because they would have a whole other bunch of hoops that have oh. to jump through. But maybe jumping through those hoops is not such a bad Maybe thing. I'll just stick with the porcelain bowl. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's an interesting one. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, James. Uh, <laughs> 
heightened consumption of music through streaming services has become something of a bugbear for artists these days. How can they get fair pay for their art? In the days of music stores, artists would just get a cut of every record or CD sold, and that seemed to just work. Then Napster in the early 2000s flung the doors of every music store open, wide open, with its free streaming service. Then Metallica stepped in and rightfully so put an end to that. So in a bit to compromise and develop a solution, apps like Spotify have developed a system where musicians are offered a tinkle of cash for every 30-second hit on their music. It's a tough gig, but savvy musos may have found a loophole to get a decent paycheck, Matt. Well, the Spotify CEO says this is not a loophole, and that disappoints me somewhat because I had plans, James, that you and I were going to put out a little 30-second song. It was going to be <laughs> average based on my voice, probably a bit better than average based on your voice. <laughs> it may not have been in the old days a top 10 hit, but the numbers that were put around by finance analysts at JP Morgan said that you could generate about $1,600 a month from having a computer sitting in the corner, constantly running that song. Oh, hopefully with the volume down. <laughs> Absolutely muted, I would suggest. <laughs> <laughs> now, say $400 a week. $400 a week in Australian dollars just for having a 30-second song play over and over and over. Supposedly the algorithm yeah. at Spotify said, oh, there's an artist, James and Matthew, doing hits. We better pay them their $1,600 for this month. But that was for one song, James. Mm. Our second song would have been just as big a hit, and I reckon for the cost of another computer sitting in the corner of my office, I can generate another $400 a week. So now we're sitting on $800 yeah. a week wow. from two songs, and on it goes from there. Now, our uh, the the CEO of Spotify, Daniel Eck, has said that it doesn't actually work quite as simply as that. And I would hope they do things like look at unique plays, unique IP addresses, for example, yeah, okay. and have something a bit cleverer than just me sitting in a computer in the corner. But one of the things that is interesting is they still estimate, some of the experts in this estimate, that up to 10% of all streams could be fake. Now, one of the things that artists do sometimes is not so much about generating the dollars, that sounds like an easy way to generate some money, but you want your song to be recognised, you want to hit the top 100 list or you want it to get up the chart somewhere. Yeah. So even initially, you may not necessarily want to do it to generate lots of money from just playing that one song on your computer, but you want to get up the charts and then other people might go, oh, here's a song. I haven't heard that before. It seems to be going up the charts. I'll go and listen to that. So that can be a way of mm. generating interest and then lots of other people listen to it and then that starts to generate some money for you. So there's no doubt about it that you're right. In the old days, it was pretty simple. They released a record, a vinyl record, in a single format normally back in the old, old days. And it was simple. If someone was happy to hand over their cold, hard cash for that, yeah. then you got to have the record and the artist got to have a little tiny bit of money. And I think the record producers got a bit more of that money. Mm. But ultimately, it was linked directly to your expenditure. Of course, with streaming, you're just paying a monthly fee to have access to every to song. every music, yeah. And I love that because sometimes I'll be driving in the car and I'll be talking to the kids about some old classic song and I'll say, hold on, we'll just play it. And you hit the button on the car. And something by the ink spots. Well, something <laughs> by someone out there that the kids will never have heard of. But one of the things with that is that you, without knowing it, you're contributing to that artist's collection or, or finances in a little tiny bit. And that's fair and I don't have a problem with that. But when people are trying to create this whole fake process to do it, that's a bit tougher. So the algorithm to do it has got to be pretty clever mm. to weed out the fake plays but still reward artists that get genuine plays out there. Yeah. I imagine that when they get 
this right, and they're changing all the time. In fact, there is a, a new model that's trying to be worked on at the moment that Spotify and Apple Music will try and adjust their model to take advantage of it. I would imagine that you wouldn't ever tell anyone. It would have to be a closely guarded secret because you don't want someone to game the system. As soon as anyone knows yeah. how it works, oh, well, that's easy. That's Let's right. go and game the system out there. I mean, I've seen things where people advertise a new song and they say, please just go and play this once because more people that play it will move it up the charts. And if they've got a good fan base, they might do that. And that's probably okay-ish because they mightn't be playing that song to listen to it, but they're still genuine individual people who are playing that song at least once so then other people who might like it can actually listen to it but when you just want to sit at a computer in the corner and do it all supposedly yeah. not, I, I actually want to do I almost <laughs> I won't want to see, won't, but see I, if you can game the system I almost want see to do if he's it. just calling you bluff that's right I almost want to do it and put something on there maybe we could do some spoken word maybe we could do some poetry <laughs> 30 second of poetry limericks for 30 seconds and then put it on Spotify and play it over and over and see if it it might generate $2 who knows but I just I'm not convinced it would generate one thousand. So we'll advertise some of that uh, on this uh, podcast, <laughs> and so we'll get other listeners in as well. And folks, if you just want to keep it running in the background there for a while, <laughs> that's right. That'd, that'd be, help us be, out enormously. It'd be an interesting experiment, actually. AI phenomenon has landed in our homes and workplaces and it's made itself comfortable. Love it or hate it, it's here and it's rearranging the furniture for you. Now, if that's not bad enough, a team of US scientists have been teaching our new digital overlords how to smell. And another set of human secrets have been unlocked. Matt, are there to be no secrets anymore? No secrets. Humans are pretty clever. We can distinguish approximately a trillion different smells. A trillion? I don't know who counted them, but apparently <laughs> we can identify a trillion. So what can a dog do then? <laughs> That's right. Well, I think a dog probably can only do the same number, but I think they've got a much yeah, larger uh, surface area. aware of it all the time. That's right. And so they can pick up those smells from further away. A trillion a smells. A trillion smells. And all of those trillion smells apparently have got a unique chemical structure. Mm. So... That's interesting. Then you get to AI, and how do you tell AI how to smell? Well, that's interesting. Some researchers have started doing some work with a neural network to first of all start off with 5,000, not a trillion, 5,000 compounds, and they're training them on the chemical structure of those and then putting a description around them, fruity or cheesy or some type of noise, uh, words that will describe that smell. Yeah, right. They then the process further and said, now we're going to tell you the chemical structure of something. You can't mm. smell this. Here's the chemical structure. What should that smell like based on the 5,000 compounds you've already smelt? Ah. They then took that into a room with some smell experts. Those people do exist. And they said, <laughs> describe this smell. And they had the AI prediction of what that smell would be like. And they were incredibly accurate from an AI perspective. So just based on the chemical compound, wow. based on those 5,000, it could predict what a smell would be like. So you can imagine for a perfume manufacturer to come up with a new smell, a new type of smell, well, I want something that smells like this. What should the chemical structure look like? And I'm sure AI could deliver that answer to you. So what are you going to So use? the Terminator, when he's looking for me hiding underneath my desk, he'll be able to smell me. He will smell fear on right. you, fear all okay. over you. I wonder what chemical composition that is. Fear is, I'm not sure. <laughs> it might be uh, an interesting smell. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving it We digress, yes. That's right. So one of the things that the – well, what they're trying to do here is the ultimate goal is to fully – 
digitise smells. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, one good reason, not for the Terminator trying to chase you down hiding under a desk, one good reason is in medical diagnostics. Odours can sometimes relate to specific illnesses. Yes, I've heard about this with dogs being able to detect certain smells, yeah. uh, sicknesses. Yeah. So imagine something where you had a smell picked up by a device, you walked into a room, it had a smell of you and went, hmm, you better go and get that whatever mm. checked out. The other part is in the food and beverage industry. We've talked about some little indicators before on different foods. When is this food off? Smell can be used for that as well. So you could actually have something in the refrigerator at the supermarket and when a certain smell was picked up, a certain chemical compound was picked up, hold on, you've got some food here. It looks like it's the meat down there on the third level. Maybe it's time to throw that out. It's it's mm. emitting a certain odour. So maybe air quality, maybe when we go out in the environment, air quality, or maybe harmful gases, no more the canary in the mine, you've actually got some AI down there. Yeah. Sometimes I think people are coming up with different ways to use AI for the sake of it. Maybe this is one of those examples, but I think there might be some practical outcomes from all of this. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. heard on the news about a couple of hikers who found themselves in a spot of bother in a very remote corner of New Zealand. Well, Matt's got the details now. Even without coverage, their mobile phones saved the day. One of the exciting things they announced in the iPhone 14 launch last year was that you had this new satellite SOS feature. So if you are out of normal mobile phone range and you're in an emergency, not just to have a chat to someone, in an emergency, you could try and make an emergency call, couldn't get reception. It would then allow you to go through via satellite to have an emergency call. Now, when they announced that at the iPhone 14 launch in September 2022, that was fine if you had an emergency in North America or Canada, mm. but don't have an emergency anywhere That's else. That's right, okay. They then extended that to different parts of the world, and Australia and New Zealand got the feature in May this year, and then the first reported use of that has just occurred over in New Zealand, and this is with a couple of hikers, and they were stranded up the Arthur's Pass National Park, and there were some water levels there that were rising. They couldn't get across that. They were stuck. No mobile phone reception there. That's okay. We'll use the emergency SOS feature. Wow. They did that, and they were airlifted out to safety. It's great that they even thought of using that. Well, yeah. I think what happens when you do it, I haven't actually used it myself, but when you go to make in Australia a triple zero phone call, when you make that triple zero phone call, when it can't find reception, oh. it says, would you like to now use the satellite connection that there? That makes sense. You've still got to have access to the sky, and you've still got limitations on it. If you're in a heavy forest cover, for example, it might not work, and there's certain areas you, it wouldn't work. So it's not something I want to rely on, mm. but it's a nice feature to have there. Just in case, yeah. At the iPhone 15 launch in September this year, they were mentioning this feature because obviously the 14 had it for the first time and the 15 still has that feature. But they actually mentioned Mount Wellington in Tasmania just as an offhand. If you happen to be a Mount Wellington in Tasmania, you could use this feature. So Tasmania, for whatever reason, got a little mention by Apple at the actual launch of it. But I, I think the, the issue here is that some people might start to get a bit too overconfident with it. Mm. If you do use it, it'll have a computer-generated voice that'll send your latitude and longitude and basically say there's an emergency there. If you're going out and doing some serious hiking or going out across the middle of the nation, out in the deserts, wherever, 
I would still get an emergency position indicating radio beacon and EPIRB. Same if I was going out on the water. EPIRBs have been used and they are great and they do save lives, definitely. So if you're doing some serious hiking, I suppose this feature is more if you just happen to be driving from A to B and mm. you have an accident and you're on the side of the road with no reception, this would be a feature that you'd want to yeah, use. Yeah, it's like a, another option. Another, another option, that's right. Yeah, so it's a, a good feature. I wouldn't want to have this as the only feature I'd item, yeah. but it's great to see, well, great for those people that will say, but great to see it's actually being used in the real world. It does work, and I think uh, it's, it's quite fascinating that you've got a little phone that just normally is connecting to a mobile phone tower 5, 10, 20 kilometres away and now going up in the air to a satellite. Yeah, I think that's cool. absolutely fascinating. It's time now for our regular update on green-powered flight. There's a lot of investment going into engineering for a better way to fly, folks, and the Germans are progressing in leaps and bounds with liquid hydrogen fuel, breaking records for airtime and clean skies and such. Matt, things are getting exciting over the skies, well, in the skies over Europe. Well, normally they've been using pressurised gaseous hydrogen because mm. obviously hydrogen is not very energy dense stored at room temperatures. Mm. So you've got to do something with it. You either got to pressurise it. Now you pressurise it, you've got a fair bit of metal or something around that to hold the gas in. Yeah, you need pressures. a fairly strong container. Yeah, correct. Putting that fairly strong container in an aeroplane when you're trying to reduce weight as much as possible, is tough. But they've been doing that, and we've talked before about some of those flights where you've used the the pressurised gas version of hydrogen. But if you turn hydrogen into liquid, then you've got great energy density, much better energy density than you're storing it as a gas. Of course, you've got to have it really cold, and that's Mm. a bit of the problem. But that's where they've been doing these experiments. They're saying cryogenically stored liquid hydrogen, that's down at very low temperatures, and I don't actually know, I couldn't find in this one exactly what temperature they were storing it at, but when you talk about cryogenically stored, you're talking about getting close to absolute zero. Yeah. My issue there is that when you put that on a plane, you've got to keep it at those low temperatures. Now, up in the sky, it's cold, so you're probably not having it in the middle of the desert at ground temperatures trying to keep it very cold, but you're still going to have to keep it cold, very cold, to keep the amount of energy you need there. But they did this experiment. They found that they were going, they were flying up around 8,000 metres, say 27,000 feet, so getting close to the normal sort of heights that they'd fly at with normal commercial aircraft. They were doing flights of about three hours, so storing enough hydrogen to go for three hours. They were getting a range of maybe 1,500 kilometres. So when we talk about planes and we talk about getting to the stage of a, a carbon neutral aircraft, then... I think there's probably two solutions we'll see commonly. One will be electric aircraft for those short flights. Mm. If you've got flights that are less than an hour typically, I think you'll see electric planes. We've talked a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. When you start to get longer distances though, then you just can't store enough batteries on there. The weight, it just, it kills the equation. Mm. Going to hydrogen is going to be a solution, but you really need to go to liquid hydrogen. So this is fantastic. So this German-based startup called H2Fly is obviously with H2 in there for hydrogen, but H2 fly. So they've now done with this liquid hydrogen the first piloted electric aircraft running on liquid hydrogen. So that's pretty exciting. That's a big breakthrough. Will we go with gaseous versions? Will we go with liquid hydrogen versions? I don't know, but liquid hydrogen does seem to be the more sensible one. I just don't know how you go about getting it cold enough, stored somewhere cold enough, keeping it cold enough, and then getting on the plane for those longer flights, keeping it at that temperature. Presumably you're wasting some of the energy 
in keeping it cold enough to keep it pressurised at that level. Or well, keep there it are some stored. clever people with their mind um, uh, working on this. So, uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing more about it. The real challenge will be when you start to do flights from LA to Sydney, some of those longer flights. Yeah. So, again, 1,500 kilometres, yeah, sure, lots of flights there. You might start talking about Sydney to Melbourne, Sydney to Brisbane, those sort of flights. Again, that would be very exciting when you start using liquid hydrogen for that, but those really long flights. And let's face it, you don't have to solve that problem yet. If you're solving some of the other problems and taking jet fuel out of the equation and using electric for really short ones, hydrogen for slightly longer, you've got a bit more time up your sleeve before you've got to solve those very long flights. But liquid hydrogen sounds pretty exciting as a solution. All right, folks, throw those tinfoil hats on again. There's no hiding from Big Brother anymore. Now, the legal beagles at the Mozilla Foundation, that's an internet watchdog, have deemed that with all the new connectivity in our modern cars, that their privacy policies are far from up to scratch. Matt, give us some good news, please. Or is the deep state tracking my every move? Just be careful what you do in your car, James. The Mozilla Foundation looked at 25 major automakers and looked at their privacy policies. Okay, that's fair enough. And you mm-hmm. get in your car and you might click confirm on the middle screen or you might say okay when you first buy the car. You probably didn't read the privacy policy and you're probably not that worried about it in your car. Big yeah. deal. It's your car. What's going on in your car that could be of any interest to people? One of the things they found when they reviewed all 25 of these privacy policies was that every car company failed key benchmark safeguards. Uh. Every car company. (laughs) When you looked at it, they basically said that cars are big data collecting machines. And they looked at Ford, Subaru, BMW, like all the major manufacturers. They found that Tesla actually ranked last in the privacy policy, again, (laughs) against their benchmarks. 85% of these 25 car manufacturers said in the privacy policy that they share data with data brokers. Of the 25... 19 of them said they sell data to third parties. <laughs> so data that's in there... And Tesla's the worst of all. And Tesla's the worst of all. <laughs> 55% of them said that they can share information. According to you clicking OK on their privacy policy, they can share information with government and law enforcement agencies without any warrant. Mm. So if someone said... Oh, I'd like to see if James was speeding when he drove from town A to town B. Then, according to Tesla's policy, more than likely they'd say, sure, here's the data, knock yourself out. You get a a fine in the mail because we looked at the data from your car. Your car has dobbed you in, James, and it said that you were speeding, so here's that fine associated with that. One of the things that gets a bit scary, and I'll be very careful with this because this is a family show, but Nissan and Kia, in their privacy policies, they explicitly marked that they could share sexual activity and sex life that was (laughs) captured in the car. Now, that's not really a big problem for most people, I imagine. But for some people, that might be a big problem because you've now got in cars, sometimes cameras and microphones in there. You probably wouldn't want that shared with anyone if you're having a private special moment in your car. (laughs) But according to those policies, you could. It's a bit scary, but I do actually think Probably the speeding is one that would scare people. Probably not so much the sex life, but the speeding would be one. You might go over the speed limit just briefly overtaking a car. Imagine if there was some alert that was set up because a law enforcement agency 
we want to actually look at all that data that's captured by those cars and yeah. look at exactly what's there. I recently, on one of my Teslas, I recently had a look at, I was trying to look at an odometer reading from a previous period just for a, 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 a research reason. Actually, I was looking at some research around something. Anyway, I went back and accessed the data and I looked back and the amount of data that was being captured on my car about what the steering wheel was doing, what speed I was going, really? everything that my car was doing over this multi-month period. And I went, well, I've got this little bit of data that I wanted, but wow, look at all that other data that's in there. <laughs> now, I had to access my account to access that data, but who else was that being shared with? That was a bit scary. Yeah. yeah. So you've got IoT we talked about, you've got various smart devices, all these things are gathering information and the privacy policy, who looks at that information? Now, in Australia, we've got the Privacy Act of 1988, but whether or not that will be challenged one day when someone says, hold on, I think you're breaching the Privacy Act by actually exposing all this information, but a car manufacturer could say, well, you clicked on OK, so you've only got yourself to blame, but but what choice do you have? If I don't want to click on OK, yeah, I maybe can't drive the car. So what do I do there? I suppose the first thing is being aware of it all, and then mm. the next step, mm, don't know. seen the ads, Toyota have been certainly talking a big game about their involvement in the EV market. But while they talk the talk, I guess the big question is, are they really walking the walk? Matt, how have things been looking for Toyota in terms of their sales in recent times? Gee, I like Toyota and I've bought a lot of Toyotas over the years, but I'm struggling. They do, but I'm struggling a little bit at the moment with their head in the sand sort of attitude. The Toyota CEO stepped down in January, and that might be a bit of a sign that mm. things weren't changing quickly enough. But I read a story out of the US about, and this was a common story apparently, about a very loyal Toyota customer. This customer had bought exclusively Toyotas for many years, and the person that was interviewed was a female. Her husband had bought Toyotas, and the kids, when they got old enough, had bought Toyotas. And it was almost hurtful. They almost felt like they were being disloyal to the brand mm. when they bought their newest car, which was a Chevrolet Bolt, which was an EV. And this person said that they looked at all the Toyotas and looked at the timeline and when things were happening and they just they just couldn't see any future for Toyota in that EV market. And it's actually starting to have an impact. In the US, market share for Toyota was at a healthy 15.1%. Within a year, it's dropped down to 13.8%. Now that's a fairly big hit. In China, the sales have dropped over a year by 15%. Mm. So that's a pretty big market to lose 15% of your market share in there. When you see some other companies like BYD really making a big impact in China, when you see companies like Tesla, obviously, they're making some pretty big inroads. And when you also consider that in 2022, EV sales increased across the world by 70%. 7.7 million units were sold last year. So we should be clear here, for people who aren't regular listeners, an EV is different to a hybrid. Yes. And, and um, Toyota have long been hanging their hat on saying, oh, look, we're, we're in the EV market with our hybrids, mm. but they are distinctly different. They are. And one of the things that I don't actually agree with in their advertising is they talk about buy a hybrid it charges itself. And mm. people say, wow, we've mm. got this thing that's been chased throughout history of perpetual motion. You've yeah. now got a car that charges itself. We've broken the laws of <laughs> conservation of energy. That's right. And Toyota's done it. You thought they would have made a bit bigger deal about it all. But of course, it doesn't charge itself. It uses petrol mm. to 
increase its speed and then when you lift off the accelerator to slow down it will then regenerate some of that power Mm -hmm. in using lenders law to actually put some power back into the battery on board just like an ev does just like an ev does an ev used the battery to go up and then it put some power back into the battery Mm. but it's not giving you extra energy you had to use some petrol to get up to speed in the first place so that's interesting that they've really focused on that One of the things that I thought was significant that in 2022 again, EV sales surpassed hybrids for the first time. Mm. So if Toyota was hanging their hat on hybrids, well, hold on, you should probably look at EVs there as well. Probably the most frustrating part that I see is that rather than ramp up their R&D, rather than get on board and say, well, actually, we missed the boat a little bit here, we better get onto this, rather than say, let's join them, we can't beat them, let's join them in terms of the EV space, they've actually been lobbying the US government for less stringent emission standards, which would make petrol cars or hybrid cars of more attraction than an EV. Yeah, right. Seems like the wrong way to go about things rather than say, let's do it. Now, the frustrating part here is that way back in the 70s, Toyota was one of the leaders in this whole revolution in America where you had big tanks that people drove around and then the fuel prices, there was an oil crisis, the fuel price started to go up and Toyota made their name based on sensible cars that were the right size, more fuel efficient and people started moving away from their big American brands to Japanese brands like Toyota. They were ahead of the game. They saw what was happening and they jumped on board. I think there's a little bit of arrogance and complacency now. Toyota's the number one manufacturer in the world we're the best. Everyone will listen to us. If we say go hybrid, mm. everyone will do that. But I think they are missing the mark. There's a certainly, bit. yeah, this um, analogy of a sleeping giant yeah. uh, being caught off guard. Yeah, absolutely right. BYD is obviously big in China, but they've got plans for 100 dealerships by the end of 2025 in Japan. Mm. So they're going to go straight to where the source is. And I think all of the Japanese brands have been struggling a little bit. Honda, Mazda, Subaru, Nissan, they're lagging. Nissan did try with the Leaf. They did go mm-hmm. early with the Leaf, but they didn't really keep developing a lot after that. So it's interesting. Toyota has also been focused a little bit on their hydrogen fuel cell technology, saying that's the future, but it is a long way away still. Yeah. So I think they're really missing the mark there. I, I really think if Toyota doesn't adapt quickly, it's it's going to struggle to catch up with the Tesla's, BYD's, these new brands, but also traditional brands in the US. For sure. Ford, a very traditional brand in the US, over 100 years of history, they're saying electric vehicles, that's our future. Volkswagen, electric vehicles, there's our future. Mm-hmm. So they've got a lot of work to do to catch up. I don't want to dump on Toyota, but I just think it's one of those things that everyone else can see the writing on the wall. Toyota, that's not right, quite the there The bells yet. are ringing. Mm. Mm. And that's all we have time for today, folks. My pencil has gone blunt and the sharpener has a crack in the plastic. It just keeps tearing off chunks of wood off the end and snapping the graphite. I can hardly even sign off on the episode today. All the same, thanks for a cracking tech talk, Matt. Uh, always my pleasure. I'm just not sure what I'm going to go and do next, but I want to go and just cover up the cameras in my car. <laughs> <laughs> go and look at the privacy policy. I want to maybe have a look at that. I, I must have been on the same as everyone else. I just click OK on that. Maybe I should go and look at that. Or maybe I just wear a little bag over my head when I'm driving the car. <laughs> well, Who knows? I'll tell you, as I drive home today, I'll be thinking about all the conversations I've been having with myself in the car over the years and what Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk must think of me. Um, I'll certainly be rethinking the purchase of a new smart toilet with the fancy cameras and all that too. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. It's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is, to bring you the latest and greatest news from the future. 
here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I've been your host, James Eddy, and I look forward to catching you again next week for another brand new, fresh out-of-the-box episode. Tell all your friends and make a party of it.